Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming here for your interest in this topic. Uh, as Phil mentioned, I, uh, I was hired in 2010, 11, I, but I've been, I'm not quite sure, but I've been living here since 2011. Uh, but the first time I came to Abu Dhabi was in 2005, and I came in search of a woman who had been uh, banished from the island of Socotra uh, when a local medicine man, a Macaulay, accused her of being a witch. Now, this was not uncommon in the 50s, 60s, during the period of the, of the Socotri Sultanate, when Socotran women accused of witchcraft were often um, tried by drowning. So they'd have stones tied around their, their waist and would be thrown overboard into the sea. If they sank to the sea bottom, they were innocent and quickly hauled back up. If they floated, they were guilty and banished by way of whatever first passing Dao was, was coming to the island. In some years, as many as 15 to 20 women were deported and were tried and deported annually, many of them ending up in the Trucial states where they married into and helped establish the Kutran communities across the sea. And eventually they also amassed enough uh, resources that they could send money and foodstuffs back to the island to support their family members back at home. So what I find interesting is not just this strange twist of fate that turned a banished uh, pastoralist, Sukhutran pastoralist, into a relatively affluent Emirati citizen and patron, but the fact that I see it also as being emblematic of another twist of fate that turned what is today's, what was once deemed Arabia deserta into what is now home to today's booming cities, and what turned what was once deemed Arabia Felix, or fortunate Yemen, uh, sorry, fortune Arabia, into today's ailing Yemen. This is a story, in other words, of the transformations that simultaneously connect the Sukhutra archipelago to the Arab Gulf and distinguish it from it. And I'll be turning to these connections throughout the talk tonight. So I'm honored to talk about my new book tonight, Islands of Heritage, which is an ethnographic study of the implementation, impact, and overlap of conservation, development, and heritage projects in Sukhutra. This multi-pronged focus was necessary because heritage is not an isolated enterprise. One of the book's central claims is that because heritage discourses, materials, and practices circulate internationally, regionally, and through time, uh, we cannot fully understand their impacts without evaluating them in context of other development, conservation, and tutelary projects that have come before and alongside them. Another central argument is that far from being merely a conservative project, the protection of heritage can have profoundly transformative effects. This is significant because heritage projects in the Arab Gulf tend to be top-down, state-funded, and expert-curated endeavors. In the Arab Gulf states, where heritage is a booming industry, the breakneck construction of futuristic, cosmopolitan, and global cities has been scaffolded by the production of tribal, traditional, and homogenous pasts. Scholars interested in these heritage festivals, museums, sports, and other pageantries have criticized their erasures of national socioeconomic diversity, of pre-national ethnic hybridity, and of centuries-long cosmopolitan connections. However, such analyses, which are very often focused on what, I, what, what you might call the heritage products themselves, the museums, the festivals, the villages, tend to overlook the heterogeneity of heritage making as a process. As a result, some dismiss these heritage projects as inauthentic reenactments of Orientalist fantasies, all brand and no substance. Others position them as products of encounters and partnerships between global and local, or Western and Arab, discourses, experts, audiences, and constituents, but that itself is very broad. By focusing tonight on the grassroots assemblage, preservation, and mobilization of heritage in Sukhutra, I'm going to demonstrate, in contrast, first, 
how heterogeneous and kaleidoscopic these processes can be. And second, how heritage, a nominally conservative endeavor, and revolution, a nominally transformative endeavor, can become part of the same kind of work. So given that you've all come here tonight, I, I assume that you have an idea of where Socotra is, that you're interested in Socotra. It is an archipelago about 380 kilometers south of the coast of Yemen, and it became widely known, uh, more widely known after 2008 when it was recognized as a natural world heritage site because of its outstanding biodiversity. And that's because 37% of its plant species are endemic, so they're not found anywhere else in the world. There are also some endemic birds and insects. Uh, the island is often described as otherworldly. One person has called it the most alien-looking place on Earth. And these descriptions of its supposedly primordial nature haven't changed much from those of 18th and 19th century British visitors, who, for instance, described its adenium like one of the first efforts of Dame Nature in tree-making, happily abandoned by her for her more graceful shapes and forms. One described as Dracena like trees made for a child's Noah's Ark. Another one described its frankincense like an enormous sea serpent in the act of shedding its skin, so awkwardly contorted and alive it seemed. The island is also consistently described as completely isolated, remote, and virtually uninhabited. Again, not so different from how Rudyard Kipling once fictionalized the island in 1902, right? A Sakutra, an exclusively uninhabited interior, which abuts on the islands of Sakutra. Now, in part, I would argue this focus on, uh, or uh, a kind of obsession with Sakutra's isolation can be traced to the fact that it does experience seasonal seclusion. Uh, during the southwest monsoon, uh, that uh, uh, Socotra is very difficult to access for four to five months of the year. So uh, boats could not land there. There, uh, there isn't a very good natural harbor. And Socotrans also couldn't leave the island. Um, but the same winds that made Socotra inaccessible during these summer months also facilitated its connections to a regional food network. And um, this is, in fact, something that sustained the islanders uh, until quite recently. So historically, dows coming from places like Ajman, Ras al-Khaimah, Muscat, Sur, and Gujarat would stop on Sukutra on their way to East Africa to pick up water and other foodstuffs. Uh, they would trade these for things like ghee, dried fish, and Sukutran woolen blankets. They would then continue down to East Africa, coming back and stopping again with... Um, sometimes with slaves that uh, uh, were not so much designated for Sukutra, but they would jump ship. And so you have African Sukutran uh, communities living in Sukutra today. Uh, the main thing that they would bring that was important to the Sukutrans were grains from East Africa. So unlike people think of Sukutra having been self-sufficient in the past, but actually the islanders uh, uh, were very much dependent on these grains coming from East Africa. There were also connections between Sukutra and mainland Yemen because Sukutra is part of a sultanate of Kishan, which is in the territory of eastern Yemen, and, um, and Sukutra. So it was a conjoined sultanate. And so there was a lot of kind of connections also back and forth there, even though the sultans who had their seat on Sukutra um, did not, uh, from in the 20th century, did not visit the mainland um, all that much. Now, so I said that Sukutra had been part of this, um, had once been a, an independent sultanate. And during a good part of this sultanate, the, or the last hundred years or so, uh, it was also a British protectorate. During this period, um, at one point the British actually occupied Sukutra in the 1940s and they had a garrison there. Uh, but during this period, there were a lot of researchers and botanists who would travel through Sukutra. Uh, and many of them were interested in its plants. But the government in Aden was primarily interested in resource extraction like minerals and oil. So much so that in 1965, the high commissioner of Aden could write, the island is rich neither in natural resources nor in skilled men. Uh, in 1967, uh, the sultanate was abolished and Sukutra became part of the P uh, People's Democratic Republic of Yemen or South Yemen. And during this period, from 67 to 1990, it was governed as a restricted, restricted access military zone. Uh, so 
there were we the the British researchers who used to go a lot were no longer able to go. There were more researchers coming from the Eastern Bloc, but these um, primarily focused on ethnographic and anthropological studies. And there was a prevailing uh, notion at that time that, in fact, Sakutrin's plants were being decimated by unrestricted gaze, grazing. So people believed that the, the the plant species were basically on the verge of extinction. In 1990, Sakutra became part of Unified Republic of Yemen. And this is a period that is known that Sakutrans talk about as being the opening of the island. This was because during this period, the government of Yemen, from really the mid-90s, um, well, to, actually toward the end of the 90s and mid-2000s, uh, uh, initiated a lot of development uh, and infrastructural projects on Sakutra. So one of the first things the government did was in 1999, it extended the airstrip so that now you could have commercial flights landing year-round. So from 1999, the island was no longer isolated or secluded during the summer months. But up until 99, it had been. Um, the government also laid down a paved uh, ring road. It brought in telephone services. Uh, and this actually opened the island to an influx of visitors. Visitors, uh, Yemenis from the mainland would come there for work. There were also many more researchers, um, again, botanists coming through. Uh, people from the Sukhothran diaspora came back to visit and also a lot of tourists. Uh, but this opening, so to speak, was still quite new, so much so that when I took this photograph in 2005, this was actually a school class I was teaching English to from Home Hill. And I brought them on a Friday to the airport to see the plane land, because that was still quite uh, a remarkable event. And Friday was, of course, the place to be on Socotra when the once-weekly flight would come in from Sana. So... Um, this economic liberalization of the 90s and 2000s coincided with the move toward environmental regulation. And this was also heralded, heralded as a period of the rediscovery of Sukhutra's biodiversity. During uh, the late 90s, early 2000s, Yemen actually developed comprehensive environmental legislation, including and stating a national environmental action plan from 1996 to 2000, uh, in which it declared Sukhutra a national protected area. So it became one of the first national protected areas in Yemen. In 2000, the government ratified this zoning plan that uh, distinguished every part of Sukhutra according to its resource use uh, or nature sanctuaries or national parks. And later on, I want to talk about a specific national uh, nature sanctuary where I ended up living, which was right in there. Um, the environmental legislation didn't stop there. In 2001, the government amended the Constitution to make the environmental protection the duty of all of its citizens. Now, looking back, I find this even more remarkable than I did at the time uh, because uh, I, I sometimes wish that I suppose that my own country would do the same thing. Um, but the Sukhutrans didn't, they may not have um, related as much to these legislations that were being, that was going on and being passed in Sana. The way that they saw this environmental regulation coming to the island was via a number of integrated conservation and development projects, which I'll call ICDPs, that started coming to the island in 1997. Now, you can see there were a lot of instantiations of these kind of projects, uh, different phases, and you can see just by their titles a shift in emphasis from biodiversity to conservation and development to governance to sustainable development. Uh, nevertheless, the Kutrans generally refer to all of them as al-mashru'a al-biya, or for short, they call it al-biya, the environment. So you would have Sukhutrans talk about this period and say things like, when the environment arrived, we learned about conservation. Or, when the environment arrived, we stopped cutting down our trees. Now, of course, they were talking about the projects, but they were also depicting a kind of idea of the environment that was new to them, of the environment as a distinctive object to be governed, managed, controlled, viewed, commoditized, and consumed for the purpose of saving it. So, for instance, one afternoon when I gently scolded one of my passengers for throwing a Pepsi can out the window and I said, hey, Albia, the environment, he said, this area is not the environment. This place is dirty. It's a wasikh. It was a, it was a wadi, right? So not the environment as the tableau that tourists would come to see. Okay, so I'm an anthropologist. 
And my original goal was to document the impacts of the ICDP programs on the pastoral populations. To do this, I moved into a newly established protected area, the one I showed you, in 2004, and lived among several pastoral families. While I was there, I spent my time doing basically whatever they did, but I also had a lot of free time during which I taught English in the local school. I would hang out in the campground. I often cooked behind the scenes so that tourists would have things like salads, but didn't really know that I was in the kitchen. Um, I, uh, I attended meetings of the newly formed local environmental association in Homel. I attended meetings in, in Hadibo. Um, and I went to a variety of environmental awareness meetings or trainings, which is how most of the Sakutrans encounter these environmental projects. Um, these kinds of meetings and all these activities allowed me to observe the clashes between say the UN or the project's notions of the environment and local notions of environmental management and protection. Now, the project's achieved a number of really good things that I don't have time to go into today, but these include things like stopping, preventing an asphalt, the, the ring road from going right through a natural lagoon, uh, bringing pipe water to villages, uh, planting nurseries, uh, home gardens, uh, building the, eco the campsites for ecotourists. But nevertheless, their presence there also produced several tensions. One of the main issues was the overarching focus on scientific research at the expense of already existing local environmental knowledge and Islamic precepts about environmental protection. Another was a disconnect between how the projects frame the environment and how Sakutrans engage their natural surroundings. So for instance, during this um, school visit, and it was also an, an awareness meeting, the organizer told the students, it used to be that people didn't know about Sakutra, even just 10 years ago. But now the whole world knows about us. Also, we did not know why our island is important. But after much study, we learned that it is important. Because of what? Because of its biodiversity. Why else is Sakutra important? Because of its endemism. 300 out of 900 species are endemic to Sakutra. That means they are not found anywhere else in the world. Now, one could say a lot about endemism, but it seems to me that it's this view from the outside, right? So it's the quality of not existing elsewhere is always already an attribute of an external kind of perspective, which we might compare to a kinship metaphor used by some of these uh, students' parents at a different meeting. One sheikh said, all of us stand ready to conserve species. We love our trees. They are our trees. We, they, they are our children. They are our wives. But if I love my wife and children and tell myself, don't worry, just relax, then we'll die of hunger. <coughs> so uh, in addition to being taught about biodiversity and endemism, Sakutran pastoralists were taught how to become eco-guides. Uh, in this training, um, they were actually, men and women were separated, but they were being told, what, what are tourists? What do tourists want? Why would tourists come here? Uh, one of my neighbors, he might have kind of been joking a little bit, but we were walking back from this training and he said, they come all the way here to see our trees? Don't they have trees where they live? <laughs> so the Sakutrans were led to believe that Sakutra, which is being branded the Galapagos of the Indian Ocean, would bring in tons of tourist revenue, similar to Galapagos, that would lead to regular incomes and other kinds of development. But by the mid-2000s, the Sakutrans I knew were becoming frustrated by the increasing regulations on things like road use um, or tree cutting and the limited financial gains that they were actually seeing. They also questioned why they had to go through tourism to get development, right? There's an idea, they were being basically promised uh, as much in these meetings that you'll have this campground, this was actually the campground in here, tourists will come and spend money, then you can use the money to build a better access road. And they kind of wondered why the state just couldn't give them the road in the first place. So in my book, I discuss a power struggle that emerged in this protected area between one man working for the ICDP and another working for a European development NGO. This struggle moved from several locales, from the campground to a community garden, to a spring, to a cave. And it showed me why the contours of the protected area as identified by the ICDPs did not in fact map on to local notions of land use and also power. 
Indeed, this struggle, which ended with several of my neighbors being thrown in prison, was understood locally as a proxy fight between conservation and development, so not an integrated approach. This tension between the ICDP's commitment to conservation as development, uh, to use the words of Page West, and Sukutrin's desire for development outright is depicted in a poem about the protected area in which I lived. Now, I, I won't take the time to read all of it, but you'll notice that uh, Mohamed de Gerigoti focuses on uh, Homel being so beautiful, the trees and the earth, Westerners and tourists love you, but really, if there were petrol at the foot of the mountain, why then we could live a life of ease. <clears throat> now, while trying to understand these political struggles, I began to notice the extent to which the Kutrin's debates about environmental projects, their island's future, and their island's past were being articulated through poetry, so much so that my limited Sukutri notwithstanding, I had to start paying attention to poetry to be able to follow these conversations. It is through poetry that people are discussing the present-day impacts of Kat from Yemen, the discovery of nat Sukutra's natural environment, and disputes over land. They were also debating the past, what kinds of history and events should be commemorated and which should be forgotten. For instance, is it time to forget the 1974 execution of the sultan's family and his wazir? In other words, at the same time that foreign experts working for the projects were nominating Sukutra as a natural world heritage site, poets and several other Sukutrans began trying to define, assemble, and promote their cultural heritage as a counter to the natural heritage that was quickly being made global. So as much as I was trying to focus on the arrival of the environment, I began to focus on the arrival of heritage. What did this mean to the various Sukutrans? What was Sukutri heritage? Some would point to customs like maulids, or mixed gender poetry call and response sessions, such as the one I'll show you right here for a few seconds. But this was complicated because a new kind of religious piety movement had swept the island that had cast doubt on the religious permissibility of such traditions. Others pointed to the island's African drumming traditions and dance troops, which were being asked to perform in front of tourists, so they were getting a lot of visibility. And I'll show you what, um, what this looks like right now. <laughs> Okay, I'm wondering if the volume could go up a little for the next ones. Thanks. Um, this was also seen as particularly problematic, you might guess, because here you have mixed gender dancing, right? And there was also an idea that drumming would take people away from uh, what they should be doing. In fact, one drummer told me a story how one of his pious neighbors offered to build him a new house if he would just stop drumming. Uh, he, th he thought about it. But he told me when he was walking home, he heard the sounds of the tabla all around him, and he realized that it would be unthinkable for him to give this up. I'm sorry, he told me that he told his neighbor. I can't stop drumming. Drumming was passed down from my parents to me and from their parents to them. So he, didn't, he did not get the new house, but he was still drumming. Now, these were debates about piety, but they were also debates about modernity. Like, wow, did we really believe in witchcraft? What do we do with that? And there were also debates about identity. Are Sukutrans the indigenous Sakatri? Or does it include, does Sukutri heritage include Arab Sukutri heritage? Is it also the African Sukutri heritage? Still others tried to revitalize and capitalize on the traditional ecological knowledge, such as natural plant remedies, which were no longer in fashion. I, um, um, okay, well, I can get into that later. My friend Tanuf had learned medicinal uses from his father and had guided botanists around the island, but he could not get a job with the ICDPs, uh, in part because he didn't speak English uh, and for other reasons. So instead, he opened up a pharmacy in Hadibo and ended up treating many women for infertility. And uh, he was so successful, apparently, and his reputation spread to as far as Yemen, also Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, um, 
that uh, he got quite a following outside of Sukhutra. And I know this because twice I had the uh, opportunity of being, of, uh, being asked to carry these herbal pouches with me on the flight back to Sana'a. And one I delivered for a man who was taking it to somebody in Saudi Arabia to treat for diabetes. And the other I delivered to a woman who was taking it to her friend in the United States uh, to help her conceive. Now, for most, whether or not it was dancing, drumming, traditional knowledge, plants, for most Sukhutrans, Sukhutri heritage was linked to language and poetry. Many Sukhutrans, for example, were far less concerned about the impact on the environment of the road than they were about the negative impacts of Arabic on their Sukhutri language, or the fact that Arabic was, they were using Arabic more and more and Sukhutri less and less. My friend Ismail, for instance, had been born in the Badia, in the countryside, but he grew up in Hadibo. He told me a story of how he went back to the village one day with a friend, and along the way, they encountered what looked to them like a sick goat. They stopped the car, they tried to do something, but really didn't know what to do with this goat in their way. So they went to the nearest village, and they said, there's a sick goat on the road. And the people of the village said, well, what color is it? And they were kind of like, uh, brown? And then they said, well, what are its markings? And Ismada's friends realized that they didn't know. Now, for me, too, a goat would be a goat. But for the pastoralist to not recognize, to not be able to distinguish between goats is like not being able to recognize your own children. So Ismail realized that, in fact, maybe he wasn't fully Sukhutran or he didn't feel fully Sukhutran. So he started to try and correct this by driving around the island, collecting poetry and old stories to learn himself into this identity through language. He also worked for the environment, the projects, as a driver and later a guide and a guide's trainer. And he learned then that languages can become endangered too. All the problems of heritage and Sukhutri language, they became my problem, he told me. I started worrying about issues of language and heritage loss because I have evidence for how this language will end. I am evidence of this. Uh, Fahid, uh, who's seen here in a pink shirt, a uh, friend of mine, uh, also was born in the Badia, but became an Arabic language teacher, lived in Hadibo, also became a reporter, uh, 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 would lead sermons at the mosque. In January 2004, uh, I guess the projects had invited Gunter Grass to come to the island. Now, Gunter Grass is a Nobel Prize winning German novelist. And so the people who organized this stage of poetry session in Home Hill, underneath a bunch of dragon's blood trees. And the Sukhutri poets recited their poems, and Fahid was called upon to translate them into Arabic, and somebody else then translated them into English. The fact that this Nobel Prize-winning author showed interest in translations of translations convinced Fahid that it was Sukhutri poetry, not just its environment or its tourism potential, that distinguishes the island. He told me he realized then that Sukhutrans could participate on the global stage and that poetry could become their ambassador. This also led him and others to create the Society, Sukhutra Society for History and Heritage in 2005, which incidentally is the same year that Abu Dhabi created Adash, the Abu Dhabi Authority for Culture and Heritage here, to try and preserve heritage locally. And yet, at this time, there was a sense that everybody was grasping at pieces, but not really knowing if they were actually assembling a corpus called heritage or destroying it in their efforts. And this corpus also became increasingly desirable and was thus seen also as increasingly scarce. So Fahad said heritage is like a buried body that everyone is trying to revive, but they're all playing at different pieces. One is playing at the ear, the other is playing at the leg. What's going to happen in the end is that each person is going to dig up a part with one hair and the other part here, but they won't be able to put it back together. And if this was not confusing or disconcerting enough, it was also during the mid-2000s that a lot of Sukhutrans living in the diaspora, so in UAE and Oman and other places, um, uh, were an, who were also influenced by heritage revitalism in this region, mounted their own heritage and cultural projects. Now, before I get into that, I want to back up again and, and talk a little bit about migration, which I'd mentioned earlier. So I talk in my book about three waves of migration to the Gulf. Uh, up until the 1990s, it was mainly economic. Uh, Sukhutrans came uh, to this region to work as uh, divers, haulers, and crewmen on pearling vessels. Um, 
this ha- this was so frequent that in fact in the 1940s when the British had occupied the island and had a garrison there, they suffered from a labor shortage because so many Socotran men were uh, from the coast were actually at sea. In 1966, the British advisor actually listed emigrant labor as Socotra's most important export, followed by dried fish and ghee. He also estimated that out of a population of about 11,000 people, about one in every three to four able-bodied men was working overseas at any one time. Now, it wasn't just the Socotran men who were migrating back and forth to this region, but there were also historic connections through marriage. The, the, the Dao captains, the Nahudas, who were coming, as I said earlier, from Ajman, from Ras al-Khaimah and other places, often stopped on Sukutra to marry local women. Uh, weddings there were seen to be, uh, a, you could marry somebody more cheaply there. Now, in 1967 uh, to the 70s, this shifted from an overwhelming uh, desire to migrate for economic reasons to one that was more political. Uh, uh, in 67, the sultanate was abolished. And a number of Socotrans who were fearing the effects of that or who also um, were ideologically not aligned with the socialist regime uh, fled uh, to the Gulf region. And, and hundreds of men and women and children left each year until about 1972, which is when the state of South Yemen placed restrictions on travel. Personal interviews and archival records show the willingness of the trucial state's rulers to accept them at this time, despite the British advisors saying, oh, no, wait, those are, they may be Adeni, for they're from South Yemen, you shouldn't let them in. Um, then in the 1990s, with Sukhutra's opening, uh, this kind of uh, economic migration commenced again, but also you had a lot of family reunification. So brothers who'd been, who hadn't seen each other in 20 or more years, uh, the Sukhutrans living here went back to visit the island. They brought their sons with them who were, once, who were able to marry their cousins. And so once again, you had a lot of new marriages between Sukhutrans on the island and in the Gulf, so much so that somebody once quipped that women are their primary export now. Now, let me, I want to focus a little bit more on the 67 to 70s uh, generation, so to speak. Um, what's interesting is that about 100 men from Sukhutra and Mahra, who had gone to the Gulf, either right before 67 or right after that, ended up joining a counterinsurgency unit called the Firqat al-Wahda in Oman to help Sultan Qaboos uh, to fight against the Dofar rebels during the Dofar rebellion from 65 to 76. The Dofar rebels, or you know, the, the insurgency had been was supported by South Yemen. So these Sukhutrans, who are nominally uh, part of South Yemen, were actually then fighting their own government. Many spent months on the fringes of the empty quarter fighting against these Yemeni-supported rebels, convinced that they were battling the same revolutionary forces that had overtaken Sukhutra. How can we return to Sukhutra without first putting out the fire here? One recalled thinking. They also thought that if they were successful, that the sultan might help them reclaim Sukhutra from South Yemen, but that did not happen. What did happen is that they eventually received Omani citizenship or moved to the UAE, uh, and then none were able to return to Sukhutra until, because they'd been fighting the South Yemeni government, they were not able to return until the 1990s and uh, mostly after 1994 when the Socialist Party uh, collapsed. It is this generation that became invested in trying to define Sukhutran heritage, identity, and culture against international, state, and local attempts. So my point here is it's not just a global, local distinction. And this is especially after returning to the island after some 20 or more years in self-exile to find its sultanate past in ruins. In my book, I discuss this generation's efforts to take ownership of their island's history, to avenge the executions or talk about avenging the executions of the sultan's family members in 1974, and to reorient Sukhutran heritage from nature to culture, from the, from the focus on Sukhutran indigeneity to an insistence on their Arab identity, and from the Yemeni nation to the transnational Gulf. Much of their thinking was influenced by their experiences growing up in the Oman and the UAE, the Omani Nahada, or Renaissance, they had witnessed, models of heritage villages, forts, and festivals that they had seen in Oman and the UAE, and the sense of loss they had upon returning to Sukhutra after this long period of self-exile. We see this in the private museum created by Ahmed Saad uh, Taki on Sukhutra, 
which opened incidentally in 2008, the same year that Socotra was declared a World Heritage Site for its natural heritage and was the first museum on and of Socotra. Um, here he is. This was actually the photograph I showed you when I was showing you the, uh, I mean, he, his younger self when I was showing you the waves of migration. And um, here he's showing uh, things like silver uh, that was no longer in fashion, right? That, um, that maybe these, these young uh, women's mothers or grandmothers might have worn. You also see a traditional Sakutri dress in blue there uh, that women were no longer wearing either. In the same year in 2008, uh, Sakutrans living in Oman and UAE uh, inspired or convinced or persuaded Sakutrans on the island to stage a island-wide poetry festival. This was modeled after Adash's, the, the Abu Dhabi authorities, Millions Poet that had started in 2005. And you can see how closely they tried to model this. So here you have the panel of judges, and here you have the Sukutran panel of judges. Here you have contestants eagerly waiting to see who could go to the next round. Here you have Sukutran poets nervously waiting to see who was going to win. Um, Although these were privately funded and relatively small-scale efforts, they did have a large impact on Sukutrans, who had, the ones who had attended, who had rarely, if ever, heard, seen Sukutran performed in a public situation like this. Now, remember the clip I showed you of poetry at night in dark behind, behind houses, right? And that's how Sukutrans were used to hearing their poetry. So they weren't used to this kind of festival, um, but they also were surprised to see so much attention given to a language that they had been taught was something that was a little bit shameful or something that they should not use officially. The jury evaluated the poems based on their linguistic integrity. So the best poems were those that would have the most Sukutri and the least Arabic, which was actually quite difficult after some 40 years of Arabization. So in Sukutra, the present is largely infused with Arabic terms, terms like the environment, the state, heritage, employment. None of these have Sukutri equivalents. So most poems, because of this like linguistic demand to use only Sukutri, most poems actually focused on the past. And I'm going to play you a short clip of the winning poet of the year 2008, the first year this festival happened. <laughs> now, for those of you who speak Arabic, you'll note how much Arabic still was present in that poem, right? There are certain words that people had to use Arabic for. Um, but there was also this focus on how kind of an idealization of this sultanate past, not because of the sultanate itself, but because of how close the islanders felt to one another. And we see this also in the next year. The winning poet of 2009 was a 25-year-old man. His name is Batami. And he had a line in his poem, so 25 years old, born uh, at the end of the socialist period, said, if we could beckon for that past to return, I would know how to greet it. I love and cherish it, for I was not created for civilization. I am a Bedouin from Sukutra. So on the one hand, there's this focus on the past because of the dictates of language, but it was also due to the worry that they were being unduly political. In its first tentative year, the contestants' organizers sought to frame their cultural heritage as a necessary ingredient of the nation-state and therefore deserving of national recognition. This was in contrast to the foreign experts' framing of Sukutran's 
environmental or natural heritage as being so unique that it needed international protection. Uh, and these were a number of posters that people had affixed across diff on different walls in Hadibo, trying to assure authorities that, of course, by Sukhothri heritage, they're also talking about Yemeni heritage. In 2011, I'm jumping forward a little bit, the, um, the poetry festivals took place in 2008, 2009, 2010. Um, uh, the revolution arrived on the island. So we had the environment, heritage, and now the revolution. And this brought with it new ways of speaking. There were daily protests in the streets. People were demanding not only the resignation of Ali Abdullah Saleh, but also the end to corruption in Sakutra. Some of the things that they, the main things they demanded were the reinstatement of cheaper airfare for an island that's 380 kilometers from the coast to not have regular airfare when you don't have good hospitals on the island was a matter of life and death. So this was very important to people. They also took to the streets to uh, not just to protest the regime, but to clean the streets metaphorically. And this was, um, it, for instance, they were actually trying to get rid of cot sellers because they were seeing this as a negative influence from mainland Yemen. Cleaning the streets metaphorically uh, coincided also with their efforts to clean the, the streets literally. Uh, during this period, a lot of the foreign uh, European NGOs left the island, and so there was a vacuum in terms of these environmental protections, and Sakutrans living there started realizing and articulating the fact that we, in fact, can take care of our environment ourselves. We don't need to rely on these other people to do it for us. This goes along with Hamid Dabashi, who's written, uh, I mean, his idea, where he's written about the uprisings in the Arab world being not even so much, you know, on the one hand against regimes, but really being a revolution against this notion of foreign expertise and foreign NGOs. Uh, so the revolutions also brought a new boldness to the island. One friend of mine who's of Afro-Sakutran descent uh, told me, we've benefited from this Arab spring. Erhal, Eskatanidam, leave, uh, fall of the regime. These are new words we didn't know before. The revolutions brought this talk, and thank God, Sakutran society is beginning to understand, to acquire civilization, to change by itself. Now, alhamdulillah, I feel as if I'm a free citizen. I don't feel afraid like I did before. I speak from strength, and I'll press my demands until they are realized. When I... I, I'd been visiting the island almost annually after, having, after first living there in 2004 and 2005. And when I went back at the end of 2011, early 2012, uh, one of the things that struck me was that the same people who were organizing protests in the street were still organizing the poetry festival. So they were organizing protests to change the regime, but organizing the festival to preserve culture. And in fact, the festival became a platform for this new kind of boldness and this new critique. Uh, poems were no longer completely couched in metaphor that was difficult to discern, nor were they timid. For instance, President Ali Abdullah Saleh and his cronies were likened to a countrywide infestation of fleas requiring extermination. Or to travelers on a ship at port which when the ship finally departs will sink under the weight of its stolen cargo. Or to a lumbering camel that has irritated otherwise harmless bees, causing them to swarm and attack. The festival was more than just a political platform, though. Uh, according to one of its main organizers, Fahid, who I introduced you to earlier, it also accomplished at least two things. First, it encouraged the production and advancement of Sukhutri language poetry. That's kind of what its main intent was. But second, it helped to instill in Sukhutrans not only a love for their heritage, but also the popular consciousness that he knew to be prerequisite for any kind of social change. And what I'm going to show you now is a two-minute clip of him addressing the audience on the festival's opening night, where you see him trying to rise Sukhutrans to this level of popular consciousness. <laughs>
نحن في هذا الاحتفال لا نحتفل من اجل زهرة بسيطة فقط نستمع القصائد من ثم نذهب الى بيوتنا امامنا امال كبيرة امامنا مستقبل كبير سبطرة تحتاجنا في المجال الثقافي وتحتاجنا في المجال الاقتصادي وتحتاجنا في المجال السياسي وتحتاجنا في المجال في المجال الاجتماعي تحتاجنا بان نبنيها بسواعدنا وبناؤها يبدا من هذه الساعه يبدا من التوقف لقد عشنا في فترات ماضيه وهناك الكثير من الجهات ومن السلطات للاسف الشديد استطاعت ان تغرز في نفوسنا بان ماضينا عيب وان لغتنا عيب وان عاداتنا عيب وان تقاليدنا عيب وينهر احدنا داخل داخل المؤسسات الرسميه يتكلم باللغه السلطيه عيب يتكلم عربي يقول لك هكذا لماذا؟ هل لغتنا عيب؟ وهل عاداتنا عيب؟ وهل تقاليدنا عيب؟ وهل تراثنا عيب؟ نعم اليوم احتفينا واستطعنا ان ننتزع حقا باننا من حقنا ان نحتفي بالكلمه السبطريه وحدها دون مخالفه الاخرين لها. وغدا باذن الله نحتفي عندما يكون للغه السبطريه والعادات السبطريه مكان في المنهج المدرسي ومكان في المنهج الجامعي ومكان في كل المؤسسات ستتناول جميع الشعب السبطري. Now, one of the ironies that I'm sure you probably noticed is that he's saying all of this in Arabic. And I've actually never seen Fahed speak Sukhutri in public. Um, I think uh, it's so ingrained in him. Uh, I mean, one of the things I can say about the festival is that at one time the protesters, somebody quipped that the protesters shouldn't just be protesting for new um, air connections. They should be protesting the fact that the judges were evaluating the Sukhutri language poems in the language of Arabic. Um, but when they turned to Sukhutri one night, uh, the audience actually snickered. So that gives a sense of how what the disconnect of Sukhutrans hearing their language spoken at these official events. Now, after five nights of politically inspired poems, Fahed returned to his message on the final evening uh, about the need for a cultural revolution. I hope that the revolution here is also a cultural one and includes literature, poetry, and stories and produces new values alongside a rejection of the old ones. This is a worthy project, he told the audience. It's a worthy project, but not an easy one as we can see in a sentiment captured in one of the lines of the winning poem of 2011. We've been struck by powerful storms, and all we have are these hawari, these wooden log boats. Now, for those of you who've been following events in Yemen, I'm sure that you know uh, the revolution brought down Ali Abdullah Saleh. Uh, there was early optimism for a political solution. Uh, Sukhutra, in fact, became an independent governorate in 2013. Uh, and then in 2013 to 2014, there was a 10-month-long national dialogue conference that brought together all the various factions of Yemen, including three Sukhutrans, one of whom was Fahid. Empowered by the spirit of the demonstrations and the festival, and by years now of having assembled and then mobilized their cultural heritage, these Sukhutrans were able to change Yemen's constitution. Let me show you the constitution of 1991. You see that Article 1 and 2 uh, focus on the fact that it's, well, an Arab and Islamic state. Arabic is its official language, and Article 3 uh, points to Sharia as a source of legislation. This is actually quite standard for constitutions in Arab-majority states. The draft constitution that came out in 2015, you'll see there was actually an article that was added. So they're all a little bit different, but one is still about an Arab and Islamic country. Article two is, is the same, actually. Islam is a religion of state and Arabic is official language. But article three, above Islamic Sharia, is an article stating that the state shall pay special attention to both the Mehri and Sukhutri languages. This is remarkable because it's something that very few constitutions in Arab-majority states have, which is constitutional protections for languages other than Arabic. It is also remarkable because the population of the governorates of Al-Mahra and Sukhutra were about, is about 0.0068% of the total population of Yemen, so less than one-tenth of one percent, and yet this is the recognition they achieved. Now, due to time constraints, and also to end on a high note, 
I will stop here. To conclude, what I've tried to show you is what a group of everyday Sakutrans were able to achieve through their mobilization of cultural heritage during a time of crisis before the war. My book does this in greater detail by examining the ways in which the environment, albia, and heritage, al-Turath, as discursive practices, governing regimes, and material things were introduced to people at the geographical and cultural margins of the so-called Arab world. That is, it traces how, at a time that the archipelago was inscribed as a natural world heritage site for its outstanding biodiversity and threatened species, Sakutruans with varying degrees of formal education took to salvaging, performing, and promoting what they viewed as their threatened cultural heritage. This is significant, for it shows how heritage and revolution can be part of the same work. In fact, I argue that the Sakutruans embarked on what the Syrian scholar Tayyip Tizani once called a thawra aturathia, a heritageial revolution, meaning not only a revolution in the cognitive understanding of heritage, but also a revolution grounded in the progressive elements of heritage. Following Sakutran's public recognition of the right to use, celebrate, and transmit to future generations their formerly ostracized language through the annual poetry festivals, which were modeled after similar, if institutional, endeavors to shore up the use of Arabic among the English-inundated youth of the Gulf, Sakutran and Mahri delegates to the National Dialogue Conference were emboldened to insist on inscribing constitutional protections for their endangered languages. Although it is unclear whether this draft constitution will ever see the light of day, it is clear that these attempts to readjust the political imbalances in Yemen were grounded in some of the most progressive elements of heritage, protections for endemic languages that teeter at the edge of extinction. This shows us how grassroots claims to heritage can be a powerful form of political engagement with the most imminent concerns of the present, human rights, globalization, democracy, and sustainability. Further, it shows us how, in contexts like these, heritage from below is not only a worthy and potentially revolutionary project, it is likely to matter all the more. Thank you very much, and I'm happy to take your questions. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.